0: Hello, and welcome to Industry Elites. On this podcast, Industry Elites' very own Natalie and Vicky are going to be interviewing business owners and individuals who have made their mark in their respective industries. Dr. Charles Strayhorn is an academic at heart. Currently, he is a professor and is also serving as the vice president for academic and student affairs.
1: Since 2017, he has been president and CEO of Do Good Work Educational Consulting, LLC. Prior to this role, he served on the faculty of the Ohio
0: State University and University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Terrell loves to write. He has published over 10 books and over 200 book chapters, journal articles, and other scholarly publications. He wants to write even more, including op-eds, news, and blogs. Just as much as writing, Terrell loves sharing his ideas with others. He has given hundreds
1: of invited keynotes and lectures at 700 plus universities, schools,
0: companies, churches, and conferences across the globe. What drives his passion is the ability to connect his research and talents to some of the world's greatest needs, especially in the form of education. This is part one of our three-part series with Terrell. In today's episode of Industry Leads, Vicki and I are really excited to talk to Nashville's very own Terrell Strayhorn, who is the CEO of Do Good Work LLC, and we're really going to be taking a deep dive into the current outlooks on college education system in the U.S. due to COVID-19 and how students are really adapting to their current circumstances. So before we get into all that, Terrell, thank you for coming on today.
2: Thank you, and thanks for having me. Glad to be here with both you and Vicki. And looking forward to the conversation
0: perfect so as we're gonna be deep diving into a lot of those things firstly we just want to know how are you and your team at do good work handling social distancing currently
2: so Do good work is headquartered in Nashville Tennessee as you said and Nashville well actually I think Tennessee was one of the last state to invoke statewide stay at home order and I think that took place somewhere in the month of March but actually, since January, well, actually the top of the year, we've been physically distancing, working remotely. Before COVID even occurred, half of our team worked remotely anyway. It was exciting to, well, it's not true. It didn't start off as exciting. I think at first it was unnerving for people to imagine staying at home and having to work remotely and not having the benefit of seeing each other face to face. But um, we were able to pivot pretty quickly at least as a a company, to working remotely, using Microsoft Teams, holding meetings through Zoom. I've learned over the past couple of months to be innovative and creative in how I check in with my team as well as how we share updates with each other so that's been really exciting
0: definitely so as you've said with Nashville you are already currently most part working remotely but how is Nashville doing in general like are things opening up really quickly or are you guys still like half in half out in terms of opening
2: as I understand it is although the state was a latecomer And I think the city was as well. I mean, Nashville's dubs itself as Music City USA, a really vivid nightlife downtown with, you know, bars and music scene and art, creative arts. So I think that the mayor was hesitant to shut down that industry. But although uh, the city was a latecomer, it is already starting to reopen I have not taken part in that, so I can't tell you the real updates, <laughs> partly because apart from the company being in, in Nashville, I, too, live in Nashville. And I live in the Germantown area, which was impacted or hit by a deadly tornado in oh, March. Tornado, so yeah. Yeah, Wow, that's so a the lot. And then
0: corona right after? Oh, my goodness. Right,
2: exactly. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to mention, but on a personal note, I had the flu in late January. So it's like the flu and then the tornado and then Corona. So this year has been fraught with challenges. But just like City, I think the company and my team are all resilient. And we've been able to bounce back from a lot of that setback and just to reset ourselves into this new normal. So I think the city is opening up. I think there is more there are more plans for restaurants and barbershops and so forth. There's no real word yet official word for schools, which is important for us because our primary clients tend to be schools and colleges and universities. But we have started to really satisfy the needs of our clients using online trainings and webinars. That's been great.
1: Have you found that there's kind of a bit of a technology curve trying to implement these new I guess the new normal for kind of school setups, like with Zoom and all that other stuff, just kind of thinking when I had online courses back in the day, and they weren't really the best setup. And that was kind of planned. So I guess now with everything just being like, we have to figure this out, we have to figure this out now. Have you seen any like major hiccups with that? Or do you think it's kind of flowing relatively normal now?
2: No, I think that's a very good question. We have seen that both within the company and in our engagement of our clients. So, you know, the cool thing about leading consulting firm is that hasn't been around forever. I mean, we're three years in operations, so relatively new. And I think that our Youth as a company allowed us to successfully make this strong pivot in a short period of time. So, we had not committed to long term contracts with any vendor or provider of our technology. So, when we couldn't connect one on one, we moved to use GroupMe as a way of communicating. We were also able to implement Slack for inter office kind of communications. We could manage inter office kind of meetings and so forth through Zoom and Microsoft Teams without having to sign again or break pre-existing contracts. And I think that's really hampered the ability of our clients and competition who have been in operation much longer, have had these long-term contracts that they bidded for that they have to now negotiate out of. So I think that's on the company side, we've benefited in terms of technology. And most of the team, like I said before, you know, half of us were either remote working remotely from the very beginning. That's always been their point of connection with the company, or we've used contractors over the course of time. So we we've subcontracted out the development of our website and a lot of our marketing materials. And so Because of that, I think it brings a group of people who already have really strong technology skills to the team. So for the most part, we were able to do this with little additional training. Now for our clients, what we've witnessed is a couple of things. One is higher ed and K-12. We had a digital divide in this country that was racialized and shaped by social economic status long before COVID had a name. So what we've learned is that our clients come to us now. And, you know, primarily colleges and universities, schools, some businesses come to us to get services that we provide in terms of faculty development and staff trainings all around student success. I mean, what we try to do is partner with educational institutions to help move forward all of their programs to enable student success. Colleges and universities, institutions are still committed to student success, even in the middle of COVID. But what they've learned now and can't get around is how do we do this if our students don't have access to technology? And what do we do if the student has a laptop or a smartphone, but they live in an area where they don't have reliable Internet service? So what we're finding and we and as a company, we are equity minded. We don't ignore The realities of race and social class in this country. So we try to help our collaborators, our partners, our clients think more equitably about these things and figuring out whether or not there are additional ways to deliver services and information to people who might not have access to reliable technology. And that's opened up a lot of new questions, I think, as well. Because you think your question, Vicky, at the tail end was around some of the trends we're seeing. So Mm -hmm. we were on a call just yesterday, I think, with the client who's actually abandoning Zoom. And that's not to put Zoom on, you know, Blast or Front Street here. It's just to call out an example where everyone who's keeping up will be familiar with the fact that we now have a new term, Zoom bombing, that is refers to the fact that, you know, there are privacy concerns when it comes to Zoom and people being able to enter meetings that they weren't invited to. This has led to all sorts of things. All you got to do is look at the Chronicle of Higher Education and you can see that, you know, as a result of some of these moments, students and faculty have been subjected to racist comments and images, harassing behaviors. And a good part of our work at Do Good Work is about helping all people feel like they belong. And part of belonging requires you to feel safe and secure. And that's true even in virtual spaces. So how do we help institutions make sure that as they're moving quickly, courses online and provide just-in-time instruction through whatever their learning platform is, that they're also paying close attention to issues of privacy and security to protect their community from intruders? I
1: roughly heard a bit that the security issues of Zoom was being breached, but I didn't realize it was being breached to that level. I just kind of assumed it was, you know, the classic Facebook setup they're taking your information or your IP address. I didn't realize people could actually hack into the stream.
2: Think about it. If you, I mean, I was in a meeting for one of my professional associations when someone did that. So it was my first personal experience of watching a Zoom bombing. And it can be annoying, but it can also be really offensive with the comments that you would read and the... That they would post there. But now to those who are listening to this podcast, imagine if you were the instructor teaching a course on a matter that's already relatively sensitive. You know, so maybe it's that you're a history instructor teaching about the history of this country, or you're a political science instructor teaching about immigration, and then someone in the middle of your lecture on a significantly sensitive subject starts reinforcing or acting out the very ism that you're sort of teaching about. Um, It can be really upsetting. And then the last sort of example that I know happens for some of our clients is a lot of times now instructors, whether they're using the learning management software or a video conference technology like Skype or Zoom or Google Meets, will try to put students into groups in these breakout rooms, which are sort of breakout virtual spaces. And when an intruder gets into that space and the student is no longer even supervised or monitored by a faculty member, things can happen that you're unaware of, at least until it's brought to your attention. And that's even more problematic when this is happening during an exam or an evaluation. So I think it raises all sorts of questions, like uh, you said, around privacy and security. I think it also has connections to then what do we do? How do we evaluate students? And then my final point is, you know, psychologically, what's the damage? These are new questions. We've never had to worry about harm that a student might experience in an online well, we've probably had to worry about it, but we've not paid attention to it this way. So now we're asking like, what's the collateral damage psychologically for students who experience Zoom bombing of this nature? And then what are the online student counseling services that need to be provided for students? So I think we use the term new normal a lot. I know I do too. Yeah, um, and this new is all but normal, but it is new. And it is presenting us with new presenting our clients with new issues, and it's forcing us as a company, and we see ourselves as partners to these institutions, to think in new and different ways about solutions.
0: Everyone's calling is like that new normal, but essentially it doesn't really feel like anything normal because it's not something that we've come across or that we've experienced. So on a broader scale from maybe just aside from Zoom bombings, but in a general aspect of, okay, taking education out of the classroom to solely online, that probably brings a lot more levels of anxiety. So is that something that's really you've seen an influx in or reports back from other colleges is the high levels of anxiety?
2: Absolutely. And that's a really great question. It's almost like we planned it, but I can assure our you know listeners we did not. No. I'm, I'm working on a paper right now that is, you know, everyone's trying to learn all we can about the coronavirus and the disease that it caused, um, COVID-19. And I think that, you know, the news media, rightfully so, is turning a lot of attention to new scientific discoveries in medicine and epidemiology and public health. But education researchers like myself and my colleagues across the country are also trying to move swiftly to understand more about COVID's impact on education, teaching, learning, the process students' experiences online. And so we have a large-scale survey that I'm analyzing now, looking at the relationship between anxiety and worrying and taking courses online during COVID. The paper needs to be finished. It needs to be published. But, you know, sort of preliminary results that stood out to me, it's like a researcher's dream. You know, I was mm-hmm. studying the relationship, just the basic correlation between these anxiety measures. And that is, during this coronavirus, how often do you find yourself worrying, feeling anxious and out of breath, feeling depressed? So I correlated those measures with the frequency of taking courses online and found a strong positive correlation. So said differently, individuals, and most of these are students, but there are also some adult learners in this sample who take courses online. And the more courses they take, the more likely they're to feel this. spend a lot more time worrying, Feeling anxious, feeling depressed, and overwhelmed. And so I think it's exactly to your point. And that is that now we have new questions in front of us. And that is, you know, before we always talked about online learning as almost like a learning style. Like some people preferred to learn in the classroom, some people preferred to learn online. But when you can only deliver instruction online, it's no longer a preference. It is the primary mode of delivery. So we need to pay attention to this and generate research that will provide answers to what are those what are people's experiences in these classes? How much time do they devote to learning online? So now there's a whole literature that existed before, no one hardly ever paid attention to it, but it's getting, you know, all the buzz now around fatigue online fatigue. So you spend a lot of time in front of your computer. It's exhausting, not just, Oh, for sure. (laughs) You know, not just exhausting to like, exactly. We'll get lots of amens on that point. But you know, there's, this is where education research about the frequency in which people engage learning materials online through videos and courses connects with some of our biological and medical research about the drain on our system. It it wears our, our eyes out. Sitting in that chair is just, it's not good for your body for long periods of time. And so we will have to think about if this is to continue. And most signs suggest that we will continue this through the fall for most institutions, but we also predict that we will start seeing the manifestation of long-term engagement with the computer. So people will start complaining about and thinking about the setup of how do I sit at this computer this long? How can I balance my time so that I'm not in front of the screen all day long? You know, those who work in human factors engineering design are already at the fore thinking about ergonomic keyboards and mouse pads. Now, these are not new inventions. We had them before, but it'll become, as we're calling out, it'll become the new normal for people because we have not had to globally sit in front of a computer for even this podcast, but it'll raise all sorts of new questions. And I think as people think about taking courses, managing work and school with life, anxieties will continue to increase. Especially since this is an unknown virus. And so, what our advice has been to all of our partners, especially the leaders of these institutions, is now is the time to perfect the art of consistent communication. Because, you know, when people know stuff, they feel better, they're more confident, they're oh, more at ease. But when people don't know, it only exacerbates the situation. So, one of my friends says informed people are happy people. And I think that the research will show over the course of time that informed people are also less, I'm sorry, informed students are less anxious students. So we'll need to tell them about the change in technologies. We'll need to tell them what we're doing, regular updates about how we're securing privacy and increasing security. We'll need to keep, you know, right now, institutions, both K-12 and higher ed, need to be communicating with their constituents about plans for the fall. And this is the time, much like we see sometimes mimicked on the news, this is the time where it's okay to say we haven't decided yet. But here's where we are in the process. We're meeting. Here's who's gonna make that decision. Here's where we're getting input. I think people wanna know more than less now. And then my final point about this is, this connects back to the thrust of my personal research agenda over years. And that's on sense of belonging. When people know that you are thinking about them, you may not know the answer. You know, will we be open? Will we not? Will it be all online? Will it go back to in-class instruction? It's okay. This is new. We're all faced with new questions. It's okay to say you don't know, but when you communicate consistently and directly with people and let them know we're thinking about you, we are trying to make sure that you are going to be safe no matter what we do. We have your safety, your security, and your health at front of mind. It helps them know that people care about them. And that translates into a sense of belonging. Everybody wants to belong, and we feel like we belong when we feel like people care about us. So I think that's like state-of-the-art kind of leadership and state-of-the-art policy and practice right now in this this, uh, crisis for education. One thing that –
1: I guess kind of forgive my ignorance on this, and I feel like probably our listeners too – Could you walk us through what an online class looks like now? Just because I'm going to date myself severely. But when uh, (laughs) I was in college, when you had an online course, you basically logged on to the college or university portal. You had an assignment with a rubric and a due date. And then the odd time you'd have almost like a Facebook setup where you could go in and comment and kind of have a group discussion, but that was as far as my online classes went. Is it different now? Like, do you have kind of teachers with webcams, like physically teaching, or is it still the same kind of setup?
2: That's a great question. And to those in our listening audience, you know, I encourage you to do exactly what Vicky just did, and that is sort of think back to your experience in college and what it was like, whether you were on campus and it was all face-to-face. I mean, there will be listeners in our audience who will remember the old form of distance education where you sort of, I've heard, (laughs) I wasn't alive, but I mean, I've read about it, where you sort of filled out your coursework and mailed it in to a place. Right, so, and then to bring it forward to where we are today, so what Vicky is your question, is really getting at it, is the difference between what we're calling asynchronous online learning, not in time, and synchronous online learning, just in time. And you see both of these sort of taking place right now all across the country. And so I'll give you sort of an inside view of both. The asynchronous online course is much like your experience, uh, Vicky. That is, you might log into the LMS learning management software. Most people will be familiar with names like Blackboard and uh, Canvas and Moodle. All of these can do the same thing. It's it's the learning management software that's typically deployed for the institution. And so you log in and you might select, you'll see a list of all the courses you're enrolled in. You'll select on it the one you're trying to work on, go in and a well-organized asynchronous course would be organized into units. And much like you might remember from, you know, middle school or high school, how teachers would organize our work into units, you might have in a class on some aspect of biology, a folder called mitosis, and you click on that folder, and it opens up. And, you know, a truly asynchronous online course would have subfolders, the readings for that week. So you'd have something to read out of some online textbook or resource. There might be some videos that you'd have to watch where the instructor might walk you through some demonstrations of mitosis and how cells divide and multiply. And then there might be some exercise, much like you alluded to, Vicki, where either you have to solve a problem and click submit. It goes to the professor for evaluation, or you might have to comment like what are three things you learned about mitosis from this unit and then maybe by some set period you'd have to go back and comment on your colleagues that form of asynchronous online learning is taking place right now in a lot of places but what we've seen more often than not especially with the advent of smartphones and tablets and the mass availability of all of these video conference free video conference forums like Skype, Zoom, Google Meet, you know, WebEx, there's so many, you can hardly keep up, is the synchronous online course where you would still have a portal, online portal. So, you know, it still comes through the learning management software. You log into Canvas or Blackboard, you click on your class. And in synchronous online courses, you know, it's almost like the face-to-face experience. You have, you know, History 201 on Wednesdays at noon, and everyone logs in on Wednesday at noon, including your instructor. And you log in, and much like we're here for this podcast, you would look at your screen and you'd see the images, if their camera is turned on, of everyone in your class and your instructor. And the instructor, in most of these cases, would share their screen, which provides you access to their slides and they would lecture or go over some examples, maybe in a math class. I'm really interested. I want to see the experience of like what happens. I was a music major and a religious studies major as an undergrad. So I'm really curious to see what this looks like in music and the creative arts. Like how do you teach music and dance online? Um, But I'm sure it works some of the same way. So you could sit here and you'd watch your instructor on the screen, teaching in real time. You could click a button to raise your hand and you'd be called on and ask questions and you unmute your computer and you speak. So, I mean, that's the way that more institutions are doing it now. The only difference there, of course, is it takes place on a set day and set time through the same platform. It can be, you know, learning can be reinforced through. So I've taken courses online where they're eight, they're synchronous. I have to meet my professor and my classmates at a certain day and time, but learning is reinforced through asynchronous material. So before the next class, you have to read and complete some assignments and so forth.
1: Hmm. that's kind of an interesting setup see I was graphic design social media so Mm -hmm. I was kind of thinking how that would work for me because for a lot of like I had art history and all those kind of standard lectures but I had like a photoshop class for example and then the teacher would be like click here click there click here but it would just be kind of interesting on how that would work remotely because if you weren't finding it the teacher can't come over and just like click it for you it'd be like see that dot at the top top left keep going
2: (laughs) Right. Right. So (laughs) let me react to that, if I may, for two points. One is, you know, I think no one, you know, I believe is going to ever suggest that COVID was a good thing because I don't believe it was. I think it's by definition a crisis. A pandemic. It has, while I think we have learned how to use technology, both in business and education, but also personally. I mean, my parents use video conferencing technology way more now than they ever did before because they had to in order to stay connected to a family. So I think although we have learned to be resilient as a nation and as a globe, as a world, to make it through this, this crisis has revealed some serious vulnerabilities in our systems. It's you know uncovered some systemic problems in our communities in terms of the racial and social class disparities as it comes down to cases and infection and deaths and so forth. But what my point is even out of this very bad situation, we have learned some things. And I think it has, in the long run, we will be strengthened, revitalized, and stronger as countries, as a nation, as corporations, institutions, communities and families and individuals. So to your point, even these technologies have learned exactly your issue that, okay, we knew, I know because I wrote about it before, COVID even had a name that there were segments of our population that didn't have access to education certainly didn't have access to technology at the same rates as others. And so now if we can you know, get an iPad or a smartphone or some gadget into everyone's hands, they still don't have the skills necessary to navigate that device. And so the instructor's ability to teach is limited by that. So what you've seen, and you've seen it across all the major platforms we've talked about, is you know, artificial intelligence has been scaled up and deployed across all of them. So the, there's little chat bot that can help a student who's saying like, I can't see the PowerPoint. What do I do? You don't have to uh, stop the instructor. There's a little help button, you click oh, wow. on it and you can have this dialogue with this artificial intelligence that's already been programmed to walk you through. Hey, look in the upper right hand corner, look for three dots, click on that. And before you know it, you've solved the problem. And most of those that are done well, and I've seen some really good examples that have, end with, you know, did this resolve your problem? If you click no, it asks you for a phone number within a couple seconds, a real live agent will call you and walk you through those. So I think we've learned that our systems have to be constantly updated and dynamic to deal with the diversity of learners who are now engaged on these platforms. So that's one. And then my second point, which I may have lost in my conversation about it is, <laughs> um, you know, I, as I've seen these technologies grow, I've seen our partners come to us with new questions. So, before I might go visit an institution or a campus to help them develop a solid strategic plan for increasing the recruitment and retention of. Latino students on your campus or black students on your campus or you know it might have been a campus that was just impacted by a negative situation maybe campus protests among students or something like what we're seeing right now in Minnesota with the shameful killing of a black man by police officers that may trickle over into the campus environment and divide the campus and now our the leaders are calling on The expertise of our company to come and help them figure out how to manage that crisis. But increasingly now, our clients are coming and saying things like So all of our courses are online, and our instructors are doing the best they can, but students don't feel connected, or the instructor doesn't feel like they can connect meaningfully with their students. They, you know, it's an isolating environment. And so can you come up with some training that you might deliver to our faculty about how to foster connections and connectedness, even in online spaces? Can you help us or our job would be deliver, I mean, to develop and deliver the training to faculty and staff about how do you stay focused on your lecture or your overall agenda, while you're also fielding questions from students who might have very technological issues, like, I don't know how to turn this on, or I don't know how to get the volume up. And so those are new opportunities for us as a company, but, you know, in many ways, connect back to the sort of core of what we deliver on. I think that your question made me think about that. I think this will continue as we move into the fall and even beyond, have more learners in these spaces. It will create new questions and challenges that institutions will wrestle with and they'll have to deliver to sort of increase the capacity of their personnel.
0: Yeah, I think that it's all things that we have to consider within this time and having those questions arise gives you and individuals like yourself in these types of companies the opportunity to help colleges and schools answer, answer these questions.